and the thing about idolatry is that it works predictably in all of our lives. It makes us go out of our right mind, doesn't it? At the end of the story, it's the demon-possessed man who's in his right mind and the village people who are out of their minds. I think one of the most difficult things in life in a fallen world is this dynamic. And maybe you've seen this dynamic before, maybe you've experienced this dynamic, but in a fallen world, sometimes when Jesus does a mighty work, rather than being celebrated, it's met with resistance. So I remember my my first year of pastoring, I remember experiencing this. We were planting Frontier seven years ago. First year of planting, not a lot of things are going right. Not a lot of things are going well. Not a lot of wins in that first year of planting. I remember having a win. There was one Sunday where after a sermon, I had a buddy come up to me and he was like, dude, that was like one of the most powerful sermons I've ever heard. And the Lord used it to build me up and blah, 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 blah. Now I hadn't heard a lot of that in my first year of pastoring. So that was a really big win. Right, We're like getting there at 5.30 a.m. at Woolies and scraping tobacco spit off the floor and like, man, what am I doing with my life? I miss being an English teacher. I love this, but what am I doing with my life? Is anybody gonna show up? Not a lot of wins. So when I got that encouragement, I really took that to heart and I'll never forget how disheartening it felt when I shared that with a buddy and it was met with resistance. I was like, hey man, this, this church member said that this was one of the most powerful sermons he's experienced. It just feels good to like be used by God in, in a mighty way. He said that it built him up in this way and that way. And I'll never forget having my buddy look at me and say, yeah, he doesn't really know what he's talking about, does he? And I was like, oh, my goodness. I just, what is that? What is that? I was talking to a church member uh, last year, and this is a story that's just stuck with me ever since I heard that story. She's just like one of the coolest people ever. And so it's just jaw-dropping when you hear stories like this. I was talking to her about how Jesus saved her and transformed her in college. And she was talking about how, you know, being in college was awesome because she was finally surrounded with like a group and a community of young people who were like, passionate and on fire for Jesus. And so she was passionate and on fire for Jesus. And she went home for the summer and she was like reading her Bible every day, praying every day on fire for Jesus, like every day. And it's the type of thing that when, when you experience that fire, what we need is for that to be flamed, right? And so there she is just flourishing in Jesus, loving her walk with the Lord. And one day her mother came up to her and said, I miss the old you. What is that? What what is that in human nature that does that? You see a buddy of yours finally begin to grow in Christ-likeness. You see a sister of yours begin to succeed and take risks and experience success. And there's something in you that just can't celebrate right? It's like being at the bottom of a crab barrel. You see another crab escaping and you want to reach up, grab them and pull them back down into the crab barrel. What is that? And we're going to see that in our text this morning. Jesus is going to do an amazing work of healing where he just clearly shows his divine identity as the son of God. And rather than having that miracle celebrated, it's going to be met with resistance. I want you to see that this morning. And I want you to be asking yourself this question. What is that? 
Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Mark 5. Jesus has just stilled the sea. He gets to the other side and verse one picks up right here. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? That's what he calls Jesus, son of the most high God. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out, of the, and came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, of course. And people from the village came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to praise Jesus and worship Jesus and give their lives to Jesus, right? Now look at the text. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Jesus, get out of here. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I don't think Jesus is being mean to this man, but Jesus is being kicked out of this region. So for him to send a missionary is what his, it's strategic. He's sending this dude back into that region with the gospel. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Jesus does this mighty work, right? And it's met with resistance, right? We miss the old you. We miss Legion. What is that? You guys can have a seat. I'm going to need this. I feel like I'm talking in like a jazz voice, you know? <laughs> Start like a soothing, like radio jazz with coal, right? No, it's not a good, it's not a good look for me. <laughs> but it's like, where do you even start with a story like this? Right? You've got, you've got a demon-possessed man. You've got a man possessed by many demons. 
as though things couldn't get more metal, all of a sudden there's demon pigs. <laughs> demon pigs, which I think would probably make a great movie or at least like a, a metal band name, right? What's up? We're demon pigs. That's got to exist, right? It's just the wildest story. So let's start where the story starts, which is at the beginning of the story. So Jesus has just stilled the storm with his disciples. He crosses the sea. He's beginning to start and initiate his mission in in a non-Jewish and a Gentile area. And as soon as he gets... As soon as he gets to the shoreline, all of a sudden there's a demon-possessed man who's rushing down and meets him right there, which is like, think about that, by the way, from the perspective of, think about that from the perspective of the disciples. That's terrifying to say the least, right? I mean, there are so many scary details in this text. There's so many scary details in this text that I feel like it makes like the 1970s horror classic, The Exorcist, look tame. This this big, strong, demon-possessed man immediately is running down to the shoreline to meet the disciples. When I was in Colorado a couple of years ago, I'll never forget my dad's disappointment in me. He was so disappointed in me. We, we were kayaking in, in, in Colorado together, and we were in really, really, really shallow part of the, of the pond. And all of a sudden, like 50 yards that way was a big old bull moose, like gigantic. And my dad was like, Cole, don't. <laughs> he was like, don't get too close to that bull moose. I got too close to the bull moose. <laughs> I started kayaking. I was like, I kayaked to about 20, probably like 20 yards away. And the thing turns and looks at me and just charges me. And I remember hearing my dad say, Cole Russell. I thought it was over. I thought, I, thought it was, I thought it was over. This thing just charges me. And then like 10 yards away, he peels off. I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus, right? This is what the perspective is of the disciples, right? There's this strong demon-possessed man that's charging them. And a couple yards away, he peels off. He falls on his knees before Jesus. There's a ton of terrifying things about this demon-possessed man. Amen? So many scary details. There's like, there's like chains hanging from his limbs, right? Apparently he was so strong that whenever people would try and bind him down with chains, they couldn't, he'd break the shackles. Got chains hanging over here, chains hanging on over here. Here's a scary detail. Where's he live? Among the tombs. Now, I don't know what's going on there, okay? I think there's at least a couple things going there. Some people think that he's probably communing with the dead. I don't know. I think what's happening right here is that this is a dude who's been clearly ostracized from society. In fact, since he lives among the tombs, it's almost symbolic. I think it's a way of saying this dude is dead to the world and the world is dead to him. So you got all these terrifying details. The dude cries out and screams because of all of the internal anguish that he experiences in life. I mean, imagine that. You're putting your kids down to sleep at night. And in the distance, you hear that demon-possessed man screaming and crying. This is some terrifying stuff. Cue, cue the horror music, right? The most terrifying thing, I think, is the fact that this man experiences so much internal anguish that he's taking rocks and he's cutting himself with them to relieve himself of the internal pain. This is not great stuff. This dude charges Jesus and the disciples, peels off a couple yards away, buckles to his knees, buckles to his knees and says, Jesus, what have you to do with me, son of the most high God? And almost unbelievably, nobody cares about this dude's name. 
this dude is dead to the world, almost unbelievably in the face of this demon-possessed man, Jesus says, what's your name? And the dude says, Frank, thanks for asking. No. (laughs) I do well with that crowd. Legion, for we are many. It's like, oh man, that'll send a chill down your spine, right? So apparently this demon-possessed man recognizes the messianic identity of Jesus and begs him not to torment him. So this is not an arm wrestling match. A lot of times pop culture portrays God's war with evil as an arm wrestling match. It's not. This is a being who is so far exalted above the powers of darkness that when the powers of darkness encounter him, all they can do is beg to not be tormented. And so Jesus grants permission for these demons to exit this man's body and they go into the pigs. Think about that. It's, it's not even really appropriate to say that Jesus casted out the demons. He simply gave these demons permission, which is incredible because they discovered some papyrus from ancient Egypt a long time ago. And what this papyrus has are just all of these long-winded instructions about how to exercise demons, right? All these spells you have to do, all of these chants that you have to do in order to exercise these demons. Thank you, sweetheart. I'm such a bit, I was a Pokemon master back in the day. Did I ever tell you that? I have a first edition of holographic Charizard. So he just gives these demons permission. It's an unbelievable story. And then what the herdsman does is he goes back and he tells the town people, they all come here. And what do they find? It's an unbelievable ending to an otherwise terrifying story. There's the man who was formerly possessed by demons and he's sitting there calmly in his right mind clothed. Terrifying story. But at least we get a happy ending, right? Well, let's dig a little bit deeper, okay? There's two things I really wanna dig into into this story. There were like five, but clearly, clearly my voice isn't gonna carry all that. So let's do two. Let's rewind back to the story. And here's the first question. What do these demons call Jesus? Go ahead and open your Bible. Look at, this is really important. Verse seven, there's a very specific title that these demons use to address Jesus. And digging into this, I think is gonna help us see how deep this story is. Verse seven, crying out with a loud voice, he said to Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, if, you, if you've got a pen, circle that. If you've got a highlighter, highlight that. If you have neither, remember that in your head. He calls Jesus son of the most high God. Okay, so to understand this identity, you've really got to understand it from Jesus's perspective and in Jesus's time. So being called a son of God was not just familial. It was an inescapably militant term, okay? It, had to, it, it was kind of a reference to a military hero because what a son is in the ancient world was somebody who represented the father, would inherit the father's stuff and fought the father's battles for him, okay? So it was the representation of the father made of the same substance, made of the same DNA, made of the same stuff, but also would fight the father's battles for him. And that's why when you read the Old Testament, all the predictions of the son of God coming in the flesh had to do with military victories. If you were a first century Jew, you believe that when the son of God came, he would come as a war hero, right? As a military victor. You would think that he came to fight God's battle against the bad guys. Who are the bad guys? 
Well, that's a super easy question. Judy's exactly right. It's Rome, right? Every first century Jew would have an easy stock answer. Roman army, right? And you got to understand why they thought this, right? There were tons of reasons for thinking this. For instance, Rome was an ancient superpower. And as an ancient superpower, they were not a democracy or anything close to it. In fact, Caesar demanded not just allegiance from his subjects, but worship. And the ancient world was happy to give it to him. As long as Caesar provided them with protection, right? As long as it provided them with security, as long as he provided them with safety and peace and prosperity, the ancient world was happy to worship Caesar. Everybody in the ancient world was happy to worship Caesar, except for one pesky group of people. Those pesky Yahweh worshipers, the Jews, the worshipers of the triune God of the Bible. They said, no, we're not going to worship you. We only worship the God of the Bible. And Caesar was like, why not? And they were like, because we only worship the God of the Bible. And he was like, that's dumb. I would have been a really bad history teacher. (laughs) Clearly there's some heat though, right? There's some tension between Rome and and, and the Jews. But uh, after a little bit of dialogue and a lot of deal making, eventually they formed what was called the Jewish Rome Pact. This is super important. But just before Jesus was born, they formed this pact where essentially Jewish leaders talked to Roman leaders and they were like, hey, we're not going to worship Caesar as God. But what we will do is pray for Caesar on behalf of our God. Is that cool? And Rome said, that's cool. But even though they formed and established that pact, obviously, like, obviously Rome was still super duper suspicious of the Jews, right? They were like voted most likely to overthrow Rome. So that brings in the issue of Roman occupation. So they send Roman soldiers, Roman army members, Roman occupation, even to places like Jerusalem, the holy city. And they keep a really, really close eye on the Jews, making sure that there's no sort of revolt being planned. So can you feel the tension here? If you were a first century Jew and and, and you saw Roman soldiers spying on you, you, right? You You would hate Rome. And Rome hated the Jews. And the Jews hated Rome. And Rome hated the Jews. And so the most natural feeling in the world would be the feeling of, When the son of God comes, he's going to finally overthrow the Roman army. He's going to crush Caesar and will finally experience peace on earth. When is the divine warrior king, son of God coming to do that? And here's the son of the most high God. And he comes to earth. And rather than pursuing Caesar and Caesar's army, he approaches a different army, doesn't he? He approaches an army of demons that have seized this one man. And you know how the rest of the story goes. He, get, he casts the demons out into the pigs, demon pigs. The demon pigs go running off the cliff. They crash into the sea and they're drowned. And we get this incredible happy ending to an otherwise terrifying story. There's the formerly demon-possessed man. He's sitting there calmly in his right mind and clothed beautiful ending to the story, the type of feel-good ending that you want to your horror movie, right? Well, here's the thing. And this is the second detail we need to rewind to. The demons called Jesus the son of the most high God. What do they call themselves? This is where things go from unbelievable to, I don't know what's after that, double unbelievable. Verse nine, 
And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. That's some freaky stuff, man. Like, I don't know a lot about demons. I'm not one of those guys who spends every waking hour in my parents' basement studying demonology and putting it up on whiteboards and stuff like that. Like, that guy's name is Andrew Self, and he lives in Texas now. (laughs) I don't know a whole lot about demons, right? If you're like, hey, Cole. Yeah, let's work through this. Okay, so if you're like, hey, Cole, do you think demons still exist? I'd say, yeah. Well, why don't we see experiences like this all the time? I don't know. Will we? Maybe. Do you think that'll happen as things go further and further from modernity into some weird spirituality? Probably, but I'm not exactly sure. You don't seem to know a lot about demons, Cole. No, I don't. <laughs> but there's a couple of details that start to come through here. For instance, demons desire to incarnate the bodies of humans, right? I mean, that's just, that's just clear. Here's the weird thing though. Apparently, more than one demon can incarnate the singular body of an individual. I'm not sure how that works, but he says legion for we are many. Some weird stuff in here. Apparently demons can even incarnate into the body of animals. In this case, demon pigs. Again, I don't know what to make of any of this, but we can dig deeply into this legion thing. If you've got a pen, you're gonna wanna circle that. If you don't, remember that legion. Here's the deal. Jesus says, what's your name? The demon says legion. Legion's not a name. Legion's a term. Precisely, it's a Greek term. And it's a Greek term that refers to the largest segments of the Roman army. (laughs) Oh yeah, this is crazy. Okay, so they said that, I think like these legions, okay, so Roman legions would sometimes have up to like 2,000 soldiers in them sometimes 4,000, sometimes 5,000 soldiers. Now, does that mean that there's 4,000, 5,000 demons in this person? I don't know. How could I know those types of things? Okay, it sounds like I didn't study. I did. I just don't know. So there's a legion in here. But here's the thing. Legion isn't a name. It's a word. It's a Greek word for Rome's largest armies. Do you see what's going on here? So they thought that when the son of God came, he would come establish his kingdom on earth with a military victory over Caesar and the Roman armies. And he does. It's just not the army they thought he came to fight. Jesus came to fight an army. They thought they needed to be saved from Caesar. They thought they needed to be saved from Roman occupation. What they needed to be saved from was demon occupation in their own nature. They wanted him to fight the army out there. Jesus came to fight the army in here. You guys with me? So Jesus keeps the messianic expectation of the son of God as the divine warrior and then flips it. You don't need saved from them. You need saved from this in here. And what happens next is an unbelievable foreshadowing of what Jesus will do one day. He casts the demons off the cliff and drowns them in the abyss. And that is exactly what Jesus is gonna do one day when he comes back, amen? 
He's gonna return as the divine warrior king of God, as the son of the most high God. And he's going to take Satan. He's gonna take the devil. He's gonna take demons. He's gonna take death. And he's going to throw them in the lake of fire and burn them forever. It's going to be an amazing moment when he finally cleanses the world. And what will become of us will be there just like that formerly demon-possessed man will be there sitting there with joy, finally in our right minds and finally clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's the gospel, amen? So there he is. He's clothed. It's like, finally, bro, clothed and in his right mind. And we get that happy ending that we crave as we watch the horror movie. Finally, things end really well, right? Here's where things get scarier, in my opinion. It's easy to look at the demons and be like, that's terrifying. But I think what happens next is actually the most terrifying part. The herdsman, he goes to get the village people. They come out. And what you expect to happen is Jesus is the divine son of God. Let's give our lives to Jesus. Let's exalt him as the most glorious one in the entire cosmos. And what you see happening should send chills down your bones. How do they respond? Verse 17. And they begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. That's scarier than demons. That's scarier than the shackles hanging off of his wrists. That's scarier than this man cutting himself with stones. That's scarier than this man crying out day and night. Apparently it's possible to see the son of God in the flesh bring healing and forgiveness and joy and say, Jesus, get out of my life. And so here's the big question that we need to wrestle with this morning. This is a hard question to wrestle with. But the the story begs that we wrestle with this question. And the question is this. Do you love your pigs more than you love Jesus? It's almost logical from the perspective of the world, right? Right? Because to us, when we see all of these demon pigs go crashing into the ocean, we're just like, yeah, way to go, Jesus. That's so metal, throwing demon pigs off a cliff. But to this man, that's his entire financial well-being, 2,000 pigs. This man just lost his job because of Jesus. To the townspeople, that's their lunch for like the next 10 years. And it just went off a cliff. To this entire village and to this entire town, they just experienced economic catastrophe worse than the stock market crashing. So they look at Jesus and they say, get out of our town. So you have to ask the question this morning, Do I love my pigs more than I love Jesus? I'm not stupid. I know that you're not a pig farmer. Most of you. So let me ask the question in a way that makes sense on your context. 
in your life, what is it that ultimately gives you comfort and security? That's the question, right? What makes you feel ultimately safe? And for some of you, it's your job. For some of you, it's your spouse. For some of you, it's a dark pleasure that you've been hiding. For some of you, it's an innocent hobby. What in life ultimately gives you security? As you think about that question, honestly, if anything other than God comes to mind, those are your picks. Those are your picks. Or to phrase the question theologically, those are your idols. So idolatry is a word that you see in the Bible. And what it refers to is anything good or bad that you exalt above the supremacy of Jesus. So idols aren't just bad things. They're also good things in the wrong place. Like 2,000 pigs. It's a great thing to be a pig farmer. It's a great thing to feed the town with pork. It's a great thing to be good at your job. You should be good at your job. But when you exalt it, above the supremacy of Jesus, that's when you've got an idol. So the question we have to ask this morning is, do you love your pigs more than you love Jesus? I mean, what is that? Like, what, what is that in the human spirit that could look at a man who's been tormented for the last 10 years of his life cutting himself, crying out, screaming, seeing him get healed and thinking, yeah, but I miss my pigs. What is that? It's idolatry, right? And the thing about idolatry is that it works predictably in all of our lives. It makes us go out of our right mind, doesn't it? And I don't want you to miss the beautiful literary irony that's in this text. The irony is this, at the end of the story, it's the demon-possessed man who's in his right mind and the village people who are out of their minds. That's the effect that idolatry has on us. We go out of our minds. And if you don't believe me, try and take away, just go take away somebody's idol and see how they respond, right? We go out of our minds when our idols get taken away from us. And you find yourself in curious places. Like, for instance, if you make an idol out of your son or daughter, you might just find that one day when they come back and they're independent and on fire for Jesus and healthy and happy, you might find yourself saying, I miss the old you, right? Because that's a version of her that you could control. It was a version of her that's familiar You might find yourself saying, you might find yourself saying to a guy who was formerly possessed by a legion of demons, I miss legion. This is craziness, isn't it? It's madness. What is that? And the thing I love about the Bible is that it gives us an answer, right? Those people weren't demon possessed. So what is that in the human spirit that responds that way? And the Bible unflinchingly gives us an answer to this. That's your human nature. And it's in you. And it's in me. And it's in all of us. We're all born with this clay that's deeply fallen. One term that Christian theologians have used to make sense of all of this is the phrase total depravity. 
right? And it's the understanding, not that we're utterly depraved and can only do evil things. We're like a mess, right? We're, we're made both in the image of God and we're glorious, but we're also, you know, beset by sin and we struggle with stupid things. We're made of dirt and spirit. And so we, we're, we have this capacity for evil and this capacity for good. But what total depravity teaches is that even though we can do great things and good things, we can do nothing that's not at least a little bit tainted by sin. And uh, the, the way to prove that to you is honestly, just think about yourself sober-minded. You've never been able to do anything with a totally pure, totally clean conscience and intention. Everything is tainted by sin. Cornelius Van Til was a reformed theologian in the 1800s. And Van Til, he explained total depravity this way. I think this is the perfect metaphor. What he says is, imagine, imagine a glass of water and then an eyedropper that drops one drop of poison into the glass of water. You got that? Is the glass of water as poisoned as it could be? No, but everything in the glass of water is poisoned. And that means that everything we do has some poison in it. Even when we read our Bibles, right? It can be tainted by poison. Like, man, I really want to look self-righteous in front of my Christian friends, right? Even when we hold the door open for the elderly, right? There's this, there's this poison in there that's like, I hope somebody saw me. I hope somebody's going to come pinch my cheeks and tell me I'm mom's special little cowboy. And they don't make them like they used to, right? It's all tainted, by some level of sin. And what I love about the Bible is the Bible just doesn't lie to us, right? Nowhere in the Bible are you like, hey, you are mommy's special little cowboy, right? The Bible's like, hey, mommy's little special little cowboy is totally depraved. And you're like, yeah, that's actually true. That's how the Bible wins us over is by being honest about our nature. So everything that we do is depraved. And that means that sometimes we see God do amazing things in the world and we're like, I miss my pigs. So the question is, do you love your pigs more than you love Jesus? This whole human nature thing, it's dark and it's scary, but it's also comforting because everybody in this room, we all are jacked up and we all struggle with sin and we all have idols that we're working through. Like if you had something come to mind as your idol this morning, it doesn't make you a freak. It makes you human, right? It's a totally level playing ground. That's why the Bible says, all have fallen short of the glory of God and all have sinned before him. And that means that there's absolutely no way to earn this God's love. Can't do it. You can't earn his love because you can't do anything that's untainted by sin. There's no way to impress him. There's no way to earn his love. You can sleep on a bed of Bibles and it won't earn your salvation. You can go to church twice every Sunday from now until when you die. Can't earn your salvation. There's no way to earn your salvation. And that literally means that there's only one way to experience salvation, grace. That's it. The grace of Jesus is the only way to experience salvation. And fortunately for us, that's exactly what we see in this story, right? Imagine Legion sprinting down. He's got nothing to offer Jesus, right? He, he's not a church member. He hasn't memorized the Bible. 
He hasn't earned anything. All he does is he collapses in front of Jesus and Jesus heals him, right? And, and because of grace and grace alone, this formerly demon-possessed man is sitting there in his right mind, clothed. That's the gospel, clothed, because when you come to Jesus, you're not just forgiven of your sin, you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. All the shackles are gone. All of the scars are gone. You are clothed in the virtue of Jesus so that when the father sees you, he sees you covered in the perfection of Jesus, clothed in your right mind. Because he doesn't just clothe you, he also gives you a new nature. He gives you a nature that values God more than pigs. He gives you a nature that though it's not perfect, you at least start to hate your sin and you love God. And that's what it means to be saved by Jesus. Grace alone, clothed in Jesus's clothing, given a right mind. And then as you begin to walk out this new life of yours, one of the curious things is that not everybody's gonna be there to celebrate it. It's just true, right? As you begin to get transformed into the image of Jesus and as you begin to grow in Christ-likeness, as you begin to walk into new life, some people aren't gonna like it because it's a version of you that they can't control. It's a version of you that feels unfamiliar. It's a version of you that because of your joy, because of your holiness, it makes other people feel bad. So rather than being there to cheer you on and support you, they're gonna look at you and say, I miss the old you. We don't know what the end of the, the herdsman's story is, you know? We really don't. I couldn't stop thinking about that this week. I mean, maybe as this dude who was formerly possessed by demons integrates back into the community and maybe he's reunited with his, his friends again. Maybe he's reunited with his family once again. Maybe his wife finally has her husband back. Maybe those kids finally have their father back. And as he begins to live in his new identity in Jesus, maybe the herdsman begins to think, you know what? maybe taking away all my pigs was the best thing Jesus has ever done for me. I mean, Jesus is so committed to your Christ-likeness that he will chuck your pigs off the cliff if he needs to. That's how committed he is. I remember, sorry, I'm ranting now. I wanna end right here. About a year ago, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine and he was walking through experiencing his father uh, walk through dementia. And he was talking about what it was like to see his father lose his, his memory. And uh, that hit home for me for a lot of different reasons. But he had this conversation with his dad that has just stuck with me ever since then. He's talking to his dad about dementia. And this was kind of in the first stages of dementia before his father lost his memory entirely. And this man said to his son, you know what, Tom? As I look back at my life, I think I always made an idol out of my intelligence. Always made an idol out of my mind. I looked at my mind and my intelligence as a reason for not needing God. I looked at my intelligence as what made me special and unique in the world. I think it was an idol of mine. But God is so gracious that he's finally taking this idol away from me. So 
So the word to describe Jesus causing an economic catastrophe and taking away this man's pigs, the proper word for that is grace. Because it's, it's better to have Jesus and lose your memory than it is to keep your memory and lose Jesus. And so, yeah, there are gonna be people who look at you and say, I miss the old you. But meditate on this, brother. Meditate on this, sister. And as you do the rest of the week, I don't think you'll ever find the bottom of this truth. Some people will look at you and say, I miss the old you. But Jesus doesn't miss the old you. And that's what matters. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just lavish us this morning with grace. The grace that forgives us of our sins. The grace that clothes us in your righteousness. The grace that makes us sons and daughters of the living God. And the grace that loves us so much that is willing to throw our pigs off the cliff if need be. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray for these things. Amen.